The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for God's Word, Matthew chapter 18, reading from verse 15 to verse 20. We're picking up where we left off last week, really verses 17 to 20 this morning are our text. So Matthew chapter 18 Verses 15 to 20. This is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come readily confessing that we need you in an absolute way for the preaching and the hearing And the profiting from your word, Lord, how we need you. We confess our need. And we call upon you now, Lord, to minister in all our hearts. That we, your people, might profit richly from your word. We might receive your word with humility and with faith. And thus, Lord, we might bring glory to you in the way we live. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're continuing our examination of our Lord's teaching on what might be called conflict resolution or church discipline, pursuing the peace and purity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, we gave our attention to the first two steps of this three-step process of resolving conflict and church discipline. We also saw the mindset that each of us is to carry into each of these steps as we seek to restore a relationship with a brother or sister in the church, our mindset is to be that of great humility. Humility in addressing uh, one who has sinned or humility in receiving that same redress. However, we know, don't we, that sometimes this process that our Lord has laid out does not always go to plan. It doesn't always work as we might like it. And so our Lord gives us a graduated or escalating three-step process by which we might deal with offenses which are serious enough that they cannot be covered by love. Sometimes the personal approach simply doesn't work. And so our Lord tells us when you've gone through step one, you've gone through step two, 
Put it then in the hands of the church. Put the matter in the hands of the elders. Our Lord now teaches us that process, that third step, and he teaches us also the environment, the atmosphere of church life, of session life, of life with the elders, what should happen in that process. He teaches us that this morning. And central to the idea of church discipline is the authority of Christ. We see it there in verse 18. We see it there in verse 20. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to examine this third step this morning. What it is to put a matter of sin in the hands of the elders of the church. And we'll see that really in two ways. First of all, in verse 17, the process of church discipline And then verses 18, 19, and 20 will be the atmosphere or the environment of church discipline. So process and then kind of atmosphere issues, how it should be done. The process of formal church discipline, firstly, verse 17. We've seen last week the steps our Lord has enumerated. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his sin. Do it privately, do it personally, do it face to face. The goal there is clearly to win your brother who has sinned against you, to win him back and restore the relationship. If that doesn't work, in order to fulfill the requirement of the law, we're to take one or two additional witnesses with us to act as counselors, to act as witnesses in this process of attempted reconciliation. We saw that last week. We also saw last week in those first two steps that there are limitations to this pattern of conduct that Christ is calling us to. I want to make them clear again this morning because I'm not sure I made them terribly clear last week. Four limitations to the Matthew 18 process. Firstly, Matthew 18 is for private, not public sins. That's a general rule. Private, not public sins. Neither, secondly, ought we apply Matthew 18 rigidly, especially if we are putting the one who has been offended into danger once again. We're not going to send an abused child back to their parents and say, go and do Matthew 18 with your parents. And that feeds into the third limitation of Matthew 18. We ought to be careful when asking inferiors to go back to superiors to do Matthew 18. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but we ought to be careful in the way in which we insist on it being done. And the fourth limitation really takes us into our text today. The fourth limitation is a human limitation that Matthew 18 is not always successful. It's not in our hands, that's in the hands of, our, hands of the Lord. And because it's not always successful, our Lord now in verse 17 of our text provides another step, another mechanism by which we might resolve those situations of serious or at least more serious sin. There is an escalation. It's been private, then it's been semi-private with witnesses. Now it must be made more public. The matter must be put in the hands of the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that's the witnesses, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
We spoke about this last week. Who is the church here? It's clearly the elders. The elders are being used, or the word church is being used, for the authority of the church. Why is it being put in the hands of the church? Well, informal arbitration and reconciliation has failed. The one-on-one has failed. The witnesses have failed. And, And if sin cannot be covered by love... Our Lord is saying it must be dealt with in a formal fashion. The last step is to put it into the hands of the elders. It is the elders of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and no one else who are called to make determinations on these kinds of ecclesiastical matters. Now, I know that's not popular in the culture in which we live to say that a group of older white males are to make ecclesiastical determinations. I I get that. It's just too bad. It's the way it is. And frankly, it's the way it's always been throughout all of Scripture. God has always committed these kinds of judicial judgments to the elders of his people. Even back to the Old Testament, God has committed it such to judges or to elders. That's just the way God has ordained this kind of authority in the church. Now, having said that, what are the elders to do when they receive a matter, an allegation of sin? What are they to do? What is the process that is implicit, not explicit, in this text? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that for the purposes of this text, a sin has been committed. It's not just an allegation of sin if your brother sins against you. It's done. And the fact it leads to to an excommunication shows us that there is a real sin in play here. The first thing that the elders must do is they must receive the matter from all interested parties. From all interested parties. They must receive the matter, firstly, from the offended parties party, the one who has been injured by the sin. They must seek to meet with that person to garner the facts of the case and to understand the effects of the case and the sin on the individual. Yes, they must meet with the offended party. They must also meet with the offending party, the one who has committed the sin. They must hear from the one who has been accused What is their perspective? What is their side, their take on the matter? Friends, biblical justice requires you to hear both sides. It requires you to hear both sides. It also requires, in this case, to hear the witnesses, those who have been brought in in verse 16 to counsel and encourage reconciliation. These witnesses will substantiate the claims or otherwise. In other words, there's evidence and not just testimony. Then again, implicit but obvious to the process, when the elders find sin on the part of the offender, they must seek to remedy that sin on the part of the offender. It says in the text, if he refuses to listen to them, the opposite of that is true. The individual might hear the elders' counsel, He might hear the elder's exhortation. He or she might hear the elder's rebuke. The elders plead with the offender to see their sin and turn from their sin and repent of their sin. 
The elders are seeking to bring reconciliation between two parties. And that must happen by the offender recognizing their sin and repenting of their sin. The elders must speak to the offender in this way as they have found. You have sinned, brother or sister. Your sin is significant. The effects are significant. Can you not see the trouble you have brought into the body of Christ? But we say that to achieve the earlier goal of verse 15, to win the brother back, to bring reconciliation, to convince the sinner of the folly and sinfulness of their actions and the injury they have caused by those actions. The design is to bring that individual back unto the Lord in repentance. And when repentance is present, forgiveness can be readily granted by the injured party. And there we have brothers and sisters restored to a full relationship. Friends, on the part of the elders, this is a pastoral process. It is a pastoral process. We are talking of the under-shepherds, Christ is the great shepherd, the under-shepherds shepherding the sheep. We, we are seeking as elders to bring the influence and office and word of God onto the individual to instruct them in the need for repentance and reconciliation. And the elders do this with much prayer, verse 19. We'll come back to that in a minute. Much prayer. Prayers for repentance, prayers for reconciliation, prayers for the work of the Spirit. Now, I've said this is a pastoral process, and that frequently makes it a challenging process. Frequently as elders, and if you've done step one and step two, you also will have been in a situation where you're saying hard things to people who don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. I mean, sometimes the Spirit moves in us so that we receive the counsel of brethren or elders. But frequently, as our Lord shows here, we're saying hard things to people who are not disposed to hear them. And we see a knee-jerk reaction in society. And sadly, we're seeing it in the church when this happens. So much so that if you say something hard or difficult to someone, the knee-jerk reaction is that they claim that you are somehow biased against them. The world speaks in these terms. You're a homophobe, a misogynist, a racist, etc., etc. Because you've said the truth, a hard truth, you're against someone, when in fact the very opposite is true. Friends, that's the folly of the world. And that folly of the world cannot characterize the attitudes and behaviors of the church. It belongs outside the world. Christians are saying or ought to be saying hard things to each other all the time. Not necessarily in the case of personal offense, but our relationships should be such with each other that we are constantly challenging, constantly encouraging, constantly gently rebuking and exhorting each other as needed without resorting then to a, a cheap and a lazy slandering and name-calling. Because you've said this to me, you are this kind of person. It's just nonsense. 
No, this is a pastoral approach, not just with elders, with all of us. We're seeking the good of each other and the body. It's a pastoral process. And if we maintain this pastoral process and attitude, then we will see Matthew 18 and we will see church discipline for what it really is, a means of grace. A means of grace. Ponder that for a moment, friends. Discipline is a means of grace. It's a way that God shows us that he loves us and wants to give us grace and to sanctify us. God has means or mechanisms that lead to our holiness or lead to our submissiveness to his will. We think of those means in this way, preaching, prayer, sacraments, and discipline. Typically, we think of those as the means of grace. These are the means by which God sanctifies his people. Think on this, Proverbs 3.11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Did you hear that? When God loves someone, he chastens them. When God delights in someone, he disciplines them. As a father who delights in his children. That's the atmosphere of divine discipline and chastening. Moreover, the goal of discipline is taught to us in Hebrews chapter 10, or rather Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10. Speaking of human fathers, worldly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good. Listen to this, that we might share in his holiness. Is that not staggering? Discipline so that we, God's children, might share in his holiness? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Isn't that amazing? This is why discipline is most certainly a means of grace, because it should ultimately lead us to share in God's own holiness it turns us back from the path of unrighteousness and puts us on the track of righteousness and holiness why because discipline's unpleasant it hurts and it turns us from one direction of folly and sin to a direction of peace and holiness god's great goal god's great goal even when the goal of humans and elders is mixed God's great goal is the reclamation of the sinner and the holiness, the holiness and righteous works of that same sinner. You see, friends, excommunication of which this text speaks, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Even excommunication, the greatest censure that the church knows and can enact is toward this goal, the reclamation and holiness of the individual excommunicated. 
Let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We're talking about the formal severing of ties between the covenant member, the member of the church, and the church itself. They are cut off from the church, put out of the communion of the church. That's what our Lord is saying when it says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It doesn't mean we despise them as the Jews despise Gentiles. It means they are outside of the boundaries of the kingdom of heaven as we see it on earth. And the purpose of this is to hand the sinner over to their disobedience for a time. But that through that, God willing, he might show them the folly and futility of sin in a life that is without God. And thus grant them repentance. The prodigal son is an example of that, but he excommunicated himself. Friends, we see here, do we not, the direct path between the awful end of excommunication and the chastening and disciplining mercies of God in Christ. Do we not see the connection, the direct line between the two? We are to hand the sinner over. We are to to loose them, as it were, using the language of the text. We are to hand them over to the world. As Paul says in, in Corinthians, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That they might see the wretchedness of their own sin. The folly of their own ways. The injury of what they have done to another. To the end, and we pray for this, that God would grant repentance. That the sinner might be brought to an end of themselves in their sin and see the futility of their ways and turn unto God. Yes, it has been through excommunication that God has turned the hearts of sinners unto himself. Where God has turned the hearts of sinners to Christ Jesus in faith. And he turns the heart of sinners through this to flee from evil and pursue reconciliation and righteousness. Joel Beakey writes, consider that in Christ, God promises us wise and tender correction. Uh, and, And that's true even for the excommunicated if they belong to God ultimately. While they are put out of the earthly kingdom in a sense of the church, their name might still be in the Lamb's book of life. And if it is, God will most assuredly turn them back unto himself. Friend, I want to ask you here today, are any of you straying from God in your life right now? Are you outwardly conforming to the things that Christians do while inwardly are you turning away from Almighty God? Are you walking in a manner that your lifestyle is going to endanger your eternal soul? Are you turning away from God rather than to him? I would plead with you the words that were spoken to me by my former pastor and friend George Scipione, He would say to me, Matt, it's easier to learn by instruction 
than by chastening. It's a lot less painful. If, if you're a Christian and you're wandering from God right now, learn from this instruction. This is where you will end up if you carry on as you are. If you will not hear the instruction of Christ through his word, the instruction of friends or family, this is where you will end up. And you will be chastened. And I don't know, friend, if you've ever been chastened by the Lord, I have. It's painful unimaginably so learn from instruction rather than chastening or perhaps you're here today friend and you're not a christian and you don't claim to be but you're still walking away from the lord it matters not because repentance and jesus christ are offered to you as well as to anyone else here this day the sufferings of this present age in chastening, or if you're outside of the kingdom, are but a shadow of the sufferings of the age to come. And we would urge all of us ourselves to turn back from the path of unrighteousness, to hear the counsel of Christ your King this day. He's offering himself for you. He's offering restoration. He's offering you life. He's offering you forgiveness and healing and peace in your life. Why would you not receive him? What is there in this life that is better for you than these wonderful things in our Savior? Turn, friend. Whether you be Christian or not, turn and receive the savior that's the process of church discipline and more briefly i want to speak now verses 18 to 20 about the atmosphere of that same discipline as we think of the environment or the atmosphere in which church discipline takes place we still have to consider some process issues but our lord enumerates three principles verse 18 19 and 20 Three principles which we will work through now very quickly. Verse 18, the authority of, that Christ has committed to the church is found in the apostles and then the elders of the church. Verse 19, the process is to be one of deliberation and prayer. Verse 20, the authority of the church when exercised faithfully is Christ's own authority. 18 and 20 are very similar for good reason. Think on these briefly. Verse 18, solemn words. Truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. Jesus is introducing some hard words at this point. Make no mistake, this is the king making a proclamation. The head of the church declaring this is the case it cannot be gainsaid truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven we've seen this language before it's not new to us it's the identical language almost given to peter as a representative of the apostles in matthew chapter 16 the binding and loosing refer back to that earlier context where Jesus says he gives the keys of the kingdom to the apostles. He's saying to the apostles here, because he's speaking to the apostles, as we saw last week, 
that they have authority in his name to open the earthly doors of the kingdom of heaven and close the earthly doors of the kingdom of heaven. To open the doors in membership, to close the doors in church discipline. But our Lord goes further than that. And this is not so much an act of the apostles, but an act of himself. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Our Lord is saying this, when the church faithfully and righteously opens the doors of the church and closes the doors of the church, the same has happened in heaven. Notwithstanding the whole category of miscarriage of justice, which is real in the church, Notwithstanding that, Jesus says when the church works with Christ's authority and does so faithfully and uprightly, what they bind on earth is bound in heaven and what they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. It's a very serious matter. Those that despise Christ, despise his church, despise the discipline of the church and are excommunicated are also excommunicated from the heavenly kingdom unless they repent that's what our lord is saying secondly verse 19 because this is such an important matter of of eternal consequence it is a matter which takes deliberation and prayer verse 19 Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So there's the asking and there's the agreement. Prayer, deliberation. Prayer and deliberation. Prayer seeks God's face. It seeks God's wisdom. It seeks God's will. And true prayer is not a means to getting one's own end. Whether it's an individual involved in this or the elders of the church, the whole process must surely be bathed in prayer. If you ask anything, ask of the Lord and he will answer. But it's also a matter of great deliberation. Listen again, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, this is a conclusion, you agree on something, we've weighed up the evidence and there is agreement to that evidence. And we'd have to say, friends, looking back at process now, this matter is not easily solved in church life. It's not simply a case where elders hear one story, arrive at a decision, and enact that decision. That's not the way it works. For elders to hear this matter and to enact church discipline faithfully, it's not simply a matter of hearing one narrative and acting on it. What happens in this situation when people disagree on the facts? You did this. No, I didn't. What happens when people disagree on the facts? You did this, yes I did, but I didn't mean what you think I meant by it. What happens when elders rightly come to different conclusions on said facts? Friends, these matters are complex. They take time. They take prayer. Who is sufficient for this? 
That's why prayer is so important. I want to speak to the leaders of this church, those who will go down to Zion and be leaders there and in time be appointed to office in either churches. This passage, friends, particularly this verse, calls us to a prayerful and careful deliberation on judicial matters. A prayerful and careful deliberation on matters of sin. It calls you, dear friends, to have a humility of mind not to jump to conclusions when you hear something. It calls you to have a humility of mind so much so that you are prepared to interact and interrogate all the evidence before you. It calls you to have a humility of mind to sacrifice your time and energy to wade through what are often deep waters and intricate detail. Moreover, it calls you leaders, elders, to have the humility of mind to take the slander and abuse from those who, though they do not have the facts, are ready to chase agendas rather than truth. It's just the way it happens. It's easy to comment on something when we don't have the facts. Elders are called to rise above that kind of behavior. Humility is required. And with that, Jesus gives a promise. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus gives a promise here. It's not absolute. It doesn't rule out human error. It doesn't rule out human prejudice for that matter. But he says it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. A faithful process of church discipline bathed in prayer. Jesus says he is blessing it. He is blessing it. And finally, the last element, verse 20, the promise of Christ's presence and authority. That is to say, the authority enacted in the church is Christ's authority being enacted when it is faithful. This is perhaps one of, I think, the most abused texts in scripture, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Corporate worship is not the context of this passage. There may be a corporate element to it in the gathering of the church in some way, but that's not the principal point of reference here. It's church discipline. And this is about two or three elders. Notice that, two or three elders, not one. It is never permissible for one elder to hear a judicial case and enact a censure. Never permissible. It must be with a multitude of counselors, a plurality of elders. Yes, it's about the gathering of God's people to enact church discipline through the authority Christ has given the elders. The promise is this, where two or three, I think elders, are gathered in my name to enact this process, there Christ is amongst them. Christ promises his presence, Christ promises his blessing. When the process has been faithful and is righteous, we must say that, because it's not always that way. When the process is faithful and righteous, Christ is present. That is to say, he 
is exercising authority through the means he has placed in his church. Friends, we've said a lot this morning. We could have said a whole lot more. Time clearly does not allow us to do such. But let me close with this thought. One thing we can be sure of is this. God is zealous for his own glory. He's zealous for the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. He is zealous for the glory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And church discipline, as unpopular a subject matter as it may be, is one of the ways God achieves his own glory. He achieves his own glory by the removal of the impenitent from among the ranks of the church, thus purifying the church and establishing peace. Yes, he achieves his own glory through excommunication. But he also, and this is what we desire the most, is it not? He also achieves his own glory by the restoration of the excommunicated How much more glorious, if we can say that, how much more glorious will be the restoration of one prodigal as opposed to the excommunication of one prodigal? Certainly more joyous for us, but how much more glorious will it be to see God having worked in the heart of an individual? How much more joy in heaven will there be over one sinner who repents, over one sinner who's put out of the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, let us pray. Let us pray that those removed from our number and those of our association who have been removed from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are granted full repentance, that they might be fully restored to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the end, dear friends. There might be much rejoicing in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good and gracious, kind and compassionate. We seek your face, Lord, for those who have been put out of our number over the years. Or those who have been put out of the church many years ago that we know. Lord, how we cry that this process before us that our Savior has instituted might be to that great end of your glory. And we pray, Lord, to your glory through repentance of the sinner. Lord, we desire that pleasant and goodness, that pleasantness and goodness of experiencing fellowship with each other. Return those, Lord God, who for a time have turned their back upon that pleasant and good place, your house and your people. Return them unto yourself. Have mercy upon each one of us, Lord God. Have mercy upon those who have gone astray. Keep us from going astray in like manner. We plead with you, Lord God, preserve us and keep us all the days of our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.